Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. I'm undergoing self-isolation. It's the only way to be. Just for the lack of stimulation. So come self-isolate with me. Just take it out. Wipe it down with alcohol. Or soap and water. You don't have to be a fanatic about it. 
from the home of the homeless, a place where self-isolation is not a mandate, it's a lifestyle. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this highly private yet public edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm. Yes, climate change continues even through this. Think of it. You you know what's been underestimated all these years? No. Not the talent of the Kardashians. Methane emissions by humans. This is according to Nature magazine. Magazine about nature. Hence the name. Methane emissions to the atmosphere have increased by approximately 150%. Over the past three centuries, it's been difficult for researchers to determine exactly where these emissions originate. Heat-trapping gases like methane can be emitted naturally, as well as from human activity. Are we eating more beans? What? University of Rochester researchers Benjamin Hemiel and uh, their collaborators, along with Vasily Petrenko, measured methane levels in ancient air samples, those must be good, and found that scientists have been vastly underestimating the amount of methane humans are emitting into the atmosphere via fossil fuels. In a paper published in Nature, the uh, researchers indicate that reducing fossil fuel use is a key target in curbing climate change. So let's bail out those oil companies, won't we? Methane is the second largest anthropogenic contributor to global warming, that is, originating from human activity, after carbon dioxide. But compared to carbon dioxide, methane has a relatively short shelf life. You know this. You've heard this here before. Now you're hearing it again. If we stopped emitting all carbon dioxide today, high carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere would still persist for a long time, says one of the researchers. Methane is important because if we made changes to our current methane emissions, it's going to reflect more quickly, he says. Scientists are able to accurately quantify the total amount of methane emitted to the atmosphere each year, but it's difficult to break down this total into its individual components, which portions originate from fossil sources, which are biological. I know you've asked yourself that over and over again. How much methane is released naturally? How much is released by human activity? Well, these researchers turned to the past by drilling and collecting ice cores from Greenland. I know it sounds like a summertime treat, but it's not. The ice core samples act like time capsules. They contain air bubbles with small quantities of ancient air trapped inside. By measuring the carbon-14 isotopes from uh, more than 200-year-old air, Mm. researchers found that almost all of the methane emitted to the atmosphere was biological in nature until about 1870. That's when the fossil component began to rise rapidly. The The timing, you won't be surprised to learn, coincides with a sharp increase in the use of fossil fuels. The levels of naturally released, naturally released fossil methane are about 10 times lower than previous research reported. Given the total fossil emissions re- measured in the atmosphere today, these researchers deduce mm, that the man-made fossil component is higher than expected, 20 to 40 percent higher. So if anthropogenic methane emissions make up a larger portion of the total reducing emissions from human activities like fossil fuel extraction and use, 
will have a greater impact on curbing future global warming than scientists previously thought. You bad scientists, you! Tropical forests are taking up less carbon dioxide from the air, reducing their ability to act as carbon sinks and bringing closer the prospect of accelerating climate breakdown. I was almost breaking down myself there. No more sinks, eh? The the Amazon could turn instead into a source of carbon in the atmosphere instead of an absorber of the gas as soon as the next decade, owing to the damage caused by loggers, loggies, and farming interests and the impacts of the climate crisis, new research has found, according to The Guardian. If that happens, climate breakdown is likely to become much more severe in its impacts. The world will have to cut down much faster on carbon-producing activities to counteract the loss of the sink. Hey, what's happened to the sink? We've found that one of the most worrying impacts of climate change has already begun, says a professor of the School of Geography at Leeds University, a senior author of the research. This is decades ahead of even the most pessimistic climate models. You know, I understand why the models are pessimistic. They don't eat enough. For the last three decades, the amount of carbon absorbed by the world's intact tropical forests has fallen, according to the study, from nearly 100 scientific institutions. I don't believe it if it's not if it's less than 200 scientific. They are now taking up a third less carbon than they did in the 1990s, owing to the impacts of higher temperatures, droughts, and deforestation. That downward trend is likely to continue as forests come under increasing threat from climate change and exploitation. The typical tropical forest, according to this research, may become a carbon source by the 2060s. At this year's UN Climate Talks, to be held in Glasgow in November, if if you can get to Glasgow in November, <laughs> many countries are expected to come forward with plans to reach net zero emissions by mid-century, but some rich company, uh, countries and many companies plan to reduce their emissions via offsetting, often by preserving, replanting, or growing new forest. This research shows that relying on tropical forests is unlikely to be enough to offset large-scale emissions. But, you know, maybe nature is providing the answer in the form of this virus because emissions are going down while we're all sitting at home. Maybe the virus is the answer. No, the movement of sea ice between Arctic countries is expected to significantly increase this century. Who knew? I didn't know that sea ice was moving between Arctic countries. This raises the risk of more widely transporting pollutants like microplastics and oil according to new research from Colorado University Boulder. The study in American Geophysical Union journal Earth's Future predicts that by mid-century, the average time it takes for sea ice to travel from one region to another will decrease by more than half. The amount of sea ice exchanged between Arctic countries like U.S., Norway, Canada, and Russia will more than triple. Speaking of ice... During the exceptionally warm Arctic summer of 2019, Greenland lost 600 billion tons of ice, enough to raise global sea levels by 2.2 millimeters in two months. The twos are wild! On the opposite pole, Antarctica continued to lose mass in the Ammon Sea embayment and Antarctic Peninsula, but saw some relief in the form of increased snowfall in Queen Maudland, in the eastern part of the continent. So... 
The polls give and they take. These new findings and others by glaciologists at UC Irvine and NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab are the subject of a paper published in Geophysical Research Letters. We knew this past summer had been particularly warm in Greenland, melting every corner of the ice sheet, but the numbers are enormous, says the lead author of UC Irvine, Isabella Velikonia. In Antarctica, the mass loss in the West proceeds unabated, which is very bad news for sea level rise, she said, but we also observe a mass gain in the Atlantic sector of East Antarctica, which helps mitigate the enormous increase in mass loss we've seen over the last two decades in other parts of the continent. You know who's not doing well with all this? The monarch butterfly. The yearly count of monarchs overwintering in Mexico released this week shows a decrease of 53% in last year's count, well below the threshold at which government scientists predict the migration of the butterflies could collapse. Tom? It could collapse. That's good. Scientists estimate that six hectares, I don't think Americans know enough about hectares, do you? It's about 15 acres, actually, is the extinction threshold for the migratory butterflies' survival in North America. The latest count by World Wildlife Fund Mexico found overwintering monarchs occupying just 2.3 hectares, or seven acres. It's about half of what it should be. for them to survive, you see, in hectares. I don't know if the butterflies use hectares. Scientists were expecting the count to be down slightly. This level of decrease is heartbreaking, said a senior scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity. Monarchs unite us. The more protections are clearly needed for these migratory wonders and their habitat, said the scientist. A few years ago, six to be exact, conservationists led by the Center for Biological Diversity and the Center for Food Safety petitioned the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to protect the butterfly under the Endangered Species Act. The decision will be issued in December of this year. Yes. Stuff moves slow. This latest population decrease is attributable to poor weather conditions during the spring and fall migrations. Monarchs have lost an estimated 165 million acres of breeding habitat in the U.S. due to herbicide spraying and development. They didn't develop the herbicide. You know what I mean. Monarch caterpillars only eat milkwood. Only milkwood. That's Dylan Thomas classic from but the plant has been devastated by increased herbicide spraying in conjunction with corn and soybean crops that have been genetically engineered to tolerate direct herbicide spraying in addition to our old friend glyphosate roundup to you and me monarchs are threatened by other herbicides and by neonicotinoid insecticides that are toxic to young caterpillars and decrease the health of adult butterflies so it's not just the bees and An ironic bit of news at this point in time. The Heartland Institute is undergoing its second leadership change in less than a year. The group which rejects climate science, according to Science Magazine, well, I bet they don't even subscribe. The group is ousting its president, Frank Lissee, after being buffeted by financial turbulence that led to significant layoffs, according to sources close to Heartland. He's being kicked out, one source said. 
HuffPost reported earlier this year that former staffers blamed Lassie for blowing through the group's budget. These assertions came as the Heartland Institute hired a 19-year-old German woman to publicly reject climate science. That was an attempt to establish her as an, at- as an anti-Greta Thunberg figure and to raise money. The Heartland spokesman did not respond to comment. Um, James Taylor, director of uh, Heartland's Center for Climate and Environmental Policies, supposedly a candidate, he has been passed over twice before, briefly left Heartland to open a small pro-fracking think tank, then later returned to Heartland. Last June, the then-president, former Congressman Tim Hulskamp, abruptly parted ways with the group. He was a three-term Republican congressman from Kansas, go figure, and a former chairman of the House Tea Party Caucus. Lassie, former member of the Wisconsin State Senate and Assembly and an ally of former Governor Scott Walker, oversaw a tumultuous period for Heartland Institute. The Chicago-based group recently laid off about half of its employees. He's... He... It has received millions of dollars in funding from the energy industry over the years. A lot of it from Coke. We are Coke. No, we aren't. Not anymore. Many of those contributions have dried up as major players in the oil and gas industry like ExxonMobil backed away from denying climate change. Other funders, such as Murray Energy, have gone bankrupt. Hey, Murray, what happened to you? You look bankrupt. Apparently there's no money anymore in climate change denial. News of the Warm, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, ladies and gentlemen, News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersole the Third. This week we address the question, can a movement be moved? By some forecasts, according to Asia Times, Tokyo may end up spending some $26 billion on the Olympics and Paralympics, dwarfing the roughly $7 billion it was originally estimated the event would cost. The International Olympic Committee has ruled out staging the Tokyo Olympics behind closed doors because insiders say that would be anathema to the philosophy of a movement that seeks to bring people across the globe together in celebration of sport, according to The Guardian. Tokyo Organizing Committee continued to maintain... Tokyo Organizing Committee and the IOC continue to maintain in public and private. The Games will go ahead in July. An IOC executive board meeting takes place this coming Tuesday. It's understood a postponement is not on the agenda. The Olympic Boxing Qualifying Tournament in London has become the latest event to be cancelled because of growing concerns relating to the welfare of the athletes as well as volunteers. Some sports, including horse racing and snooker, are continuing behind closed doors. Such an approach has already been rejected by the IOC. They have the IOC, except that it will need to relax qualification standards so athletes who are on the borderline can be selected even if they're unable to compete in the coming months 
because of the pandemic. Nearly 60% of athletes have qualified, but with qualifying events for climbing, boxing, fencing, and judo having been canceled or postponed, many athletes are being left in the lurch. Why don't you hold the Olympics in the lurch? The Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe says he wants the Olympics to represent a world victory over coronavirus. His fellow citizens are less optimistic, 69% saying they didn't think Tokyo would be able to host the Games as planned. And now, this weekend, U.S. Olympic leaders are facing a growing rebellion inside their ranks about holding the Games. A board member of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee countered leadership by criticizing the IOC and U.S. track and field chief added to the call for postponement because of the mushrooming crisis. U.S. Track and Field CEO Max Siegel sent a two-page note to his counterpart at the Olympic Committee, Sarah Hirschland, asking the Federation to advocate for delay that came only a few hours after U.S. Swimming's CEO sent a similar letter. And the sport that accounted for 65 of America's 121 medals in the last Summer Games, on record urging in Siegel's words, the U.S. Olympic Committee as a leader within the Olympic movement to use the voice and speak up for the athletes. In a blog post on Friday, Steve Meisler, a board member of the Olympic Committee in the U.S., leveled much more criticism toward the IOC. It has not shown the leadership we Olympians desire out of those who are in charge, he wrote. While he was careful to emphasize those were his thoughts, not of the U.S. Olympic Committee. The federations in Norway and Brazil also went public with requests to postpone. How do you move the Olympics? It's a movement. And more than ever, we all need one. Every day.
from Nowhere to Run. I'm Harry Shearer, and this is the show. Uh, sharing with you at this moment, because neither of us has anything better to do, right? A piece from the Washington Post over the weekend. U.S. intelligence agencies were issuing ominous classified warnings in January and February about the global danger posed by the coronavirus. At the same time that President Trump and lawmakers played down the threat and failed to take action that might have slowed the spread of the pathogen. That's according to U.S. officials familiar with spy agency reporting. Take that as you will. The intelligence reports didn't predict when the virus might land on U.S. shores or recommend particular steps that public health officials should take. That, of course, was suggested by a separate operation, a tabletop exercise at Johns Hopkins last October that uh, rehearsed what federal and state officials might need to do in case of a pandemic. Not a coincidence, right? The intelligence reports did track the spread of the virus in China and later in other countries and warned that Chinese officials appeared to be minimizing the severity of the outbreak. Well, they got that right. Taken together, the reports and warnings painted an early picture that who could have known about? A picture of a virus that showed the characteristics of a globe-encircling pandemic. Despite that constant flow of reporting, (laughs) President Trump continued publicly and privately to play down the threat the virus posed to Americans. Lawmakers, too, did not grapple with the virus in earnest until this month as officials scrambled to keep citizens in their homes and hospitals braced for a surge in patients. Hey, surges are good. We've learned that. Intelligence agencies have been warning on this since January, said a U.S. official who had access to the intel reporting that was sent to members of Congress and their staffs as well as to officials in the administration and, of course, spoke on condition of anonymity lest he get the disease or something worse. Coronavirus cases rose as <laughs> President Trump said they were under control. At least seven times over the last two months, he said the number of coronavirus cases in the U.S. were falling or contained even as they rose. Well, you know, up and down. They're, they're kind of simple. You really can... Conf- Donald Trump may not have been expecting this, but a lot of other people in the government were... They just couldn't get him to do anything about it, this official said. The system was blinking red, unquote. Reminiscent, some might think, of a briefing given to President Bush on August 6th of 2001 about al-Qaeda preparing attacks on the United States. Red lights blinking, hair on fire. The president's spokesperson responded to this article by saying, It's more than disgusting, despicable, and disgraceful for cowardly unnamed sources to attempt to rewrite history. It's a clear threat to this great country. Unquote. The warnings from U.S. intel agencies increased in volume. How do you do it? Volume. Toward the end of January and into early February, said officials familiar with the reports, by then a majority of the intel reporting included in daily briefing papers and digests from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the CIA was about COVID-19, said officials who have read the reports. 
As you know, the surge in warnings coincided with a move by Senator Richard Burr, head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, to sell dozens of stocks. He issued a statement defending his sell-off, but he's going to be investigated by the Senate Ethics Committee, which is preparing to uh, have some teeth installed for the occasion. At the State Department, personnel had been nervously tracking early reports about the virus. One official noted it was discussed at a meeting in the third week of January, around the time the cable traffic showed U.S. diplomats in Wuhan were being brought home on chartered planes, a sign that the public health risk was significant. A colleague at the White House mentioned how concerned he was about the transmissibility of the virus. In January, there was obviously a lot of chatter, the official said. Inside the White House, Trump's advisors struggled to get him to take the virus seriously, according to multiple officials with knowledge of meetings among those advisors and with the president. The Health and Human Services Secretary couldn't get through to Trump to speak with him about the virus until January 18th, according to two senior administration officials. When he reached Trump by phone, the president interjected to ask about vaping and when flavored vaping products would be back on the market, according to a senior administration official. Vaping, ladies and gentlemen. On January 27th, White House aides huddled with then-acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, trying to get senior officials to pay more attention to the virus, according to people briefed on the meeting. The head of the White House Domestic Policy Council, Joe Grogan, argued that the administration needed to take the virus seriously or it could cost the president his re-election. And the dealing with the virus was likely to dominate life in the United States for many months. Mulvaney then began convening more regular meetings. In early briefings, however, officials said <laughs> President Trump was dismissive because he didn't believe the virus had spread widely through the U.S. By early February, Grogan and others worried there weren't enough tests to determine the rate of infection. Other officials, including the president's deputy national security advisor, Matt Pottinger, began calling for a more forceful response. But Trump resisted and continued to assure Americans coronavirus would never run rampant as in other countries. I think it's going to work out fine, he said on February 19th. I think when we get into April in the warmer weather, that has a very negative impact on that and that type of a virus. The coronavirus is very much under control in the U.S., he tweeted five days later, stock markets starting to look very good to me, unquote. Earlier that month, a senior official at the Department of Health and Human Services, Robert Cadleck, Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, delivered a starkly different message to the Senate Intel Committee, joined by officials from the CIA. They told committee members that the virus posed a serious threat. No specific recommendations, he said, to get ahead of the virus and blend its effects. Americans would need to take effects, sorry, actions that could disrupt their daily lives, said the official. Quote, it was very alarming, unquote. Trump's insistence, on the contrary, seemed to rest in his relationship with China's President Xi Jinping. Trump believed President Xi was providing him with reliable information about how the virus was spreading in China despite the intel reports that Chinese officials were not being candid. Some of Trump's advisors told him Beijing was not providing accurate numbers. Rather than press China to be more forthcoming, Trump publicly praised China's response. China's been working very hard to contain the virus, he tweeted January 24th. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. It will all work out well, 
unquote. Some of Trump's advisors encouraged him to be tougher on China over its decision not to allow teams from the Centers for Disease Control into the country. The president said in one February meeting if he struck a tougher tone with China, the Chinese would be less willing to give Americans information about how they were tackling the outbreak. As the disease spread beyond China, U.S. spy agencies tracked outbreaks in Iran, South Korea, Taiwan, Italy, and elsewhere in Europe. The volume of reporting spiked. As the first cases of infection confirmed in the United States, Trump continued to insist the risk to Americans was small. Quote, I think the virus is going to be, it's going to be fine, he said February 10th. Quote, we have a very small number of people in the country right now with it, he said four days later. It's like around 12. Many of them are getting better. Some are fully recovered already. So we're in very good shape, unquote. The president eventually changed his tone after being shown statistical models about the spread of the virus from other countries and hearing directly from the White House Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator Deborah Burks, as well as from chief executive last week rattled by a plunge in the stock market, said people familiar with Trump's conversations. And, of course, now this week he's been having press conferences. Well, since he can't have rallies, he's been having press conferences. He'll get on TV one way or the other. Press conferences with uh, other officials, most recently Ben Carson, but uh, almost every day, Anthony Fauci, U.S. uh, senior official with experience in the world of uh, epidemics, as well as Vice President Mike Pence, uh, the aforementioned Deborah Burks, and uh, other officials. And the president has been caught saying things that turn out not to be true, like um, Google's website, which was going to be up, the uh, ability of Americans to get tested if they need to. I'm advised that the president is holding one of those conferences right now. Let's, Let's go to the network. So we'll see. But uh, it's going to be incredible. That's my feeling. Dr. Fauci, I know Tony has other uh, more scientific feelings, but uh, we'll see. Next question. No, no, not you. You're nasty. Excuse me. You're very nasty, and your paper is... Oh, no, I'm sorry. You're one of us. Go ahead. Mr. President, you may in fact uh, think this is a nasty question. I knew it. I knew Uh, it. But it really isn't, sir. I think a lot of people may be uh, wondering about this. Now, that's interesting because uh, when you mention a lot of people, I know a lot of people, and they're very impressed with what we, and I mean all these extremely talented people up here, are accomplishing, especially the ones who are naughty. But go ahead. You, you've said many times, sir, that in this, at this podium that nobody could have seen something like this coming. Uh, yet there was a report on your desk when you came into office warning about a possible pandemic, and well, there was a, a simulation at John Hopkins last October of a serious pandemic. So, okay, I, I think, was right. Again, very nasty question. You didn't even finish asking it, but just the first part was so nasty. But, Mr. President, if you had... I'll tell you what I had in case you haven't been paying attention the last couple of years, which knowing your reporting is so very, very possible. Or maybe you forgot. Who knows? We'll see. But I had Democrats and their friends right here in this room pushing one hoax after another. Somehow I'm supposed to see these old reports and something at Johns Hopkins, and I mean, I'm sure they're doing terrific work, 
very incredible people down there. But I'm supposed to stop keeping very close watch of the coverage of the hoaxes? Then I get criticized from the other side, right? Well, sir, it's not exactly criticism. Shush, shush, quiet, quiet. Excuse me, excuse me. Did did you even get the temperature test? I don't think so. Let's get him out before he infects the rest of us. Very dangerous. But I want to be fair, so uh, let me finish answering his question. We don't want a, a fake charge about this, too, right? So people do reports and tests and simulations all over the place. And uh, they're great people. Maybe the best. Maybe not. We'll see. But the people you see up here doing an incredible job, even while they're standing up here, you think they're doing nothing for an hour, an hour and a half each day, but nothing comes further than the truth, believe me. If you think, or other people think, that all of these folks didn't know about those tests and those warnings, I would just say this. That's very insulting to these. They're so talented. They could be back in their offices. They're up here nodding, I hope. I can't see behind, but I'll, I'll watch the replay. So when the Chinese went public, and we all know they took too long, even though they're friends of mine, I'm sure President Xi's great man, I'm sure he doesn't mind me calling it the Chinese virus. He's got bigger things on his plate, like why they didn't go public with this sooner. I mean, that's when I learned about it. But uh, he's learned a lot. I've learned a lot. I can tell you this. If something like this happens again during my administration, like, God forbid, another pandemic or or this virus type of deal, now we know, all of us up here and the rest, we know what to do. And it won't take a phone call from me or a, a stream of texts from whoever my acting chief of staff happens to be to get it all up and running. Again, quicker than anyone has ever seen, e- even including this time. This three months. Months. So I don't know if that was a Chinese report or a Chinese simulation. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But the important thing is that we'll see what happens. Thank you. Yes, you. Good. The unfair one. Thank you, Mr. President. Not you. I- the other unfair one behind you. Thank you, Mr. President. Yeah. Sir, do you think it's right to be constantly criticizing at the uh, criticizing us at these pressers while there's a national emergency going on? That's a nice question. I've never heard that one before. And when you say constant criticism, I have to say I know what you're talking about, even though I may not, because nobody gets more constant criticism than me, and a lot of it from the very same people who've been kicked out of this room. But, Mr. President, it's our job. Excuse me, excuse me. Many people ask me why I put up with it, and I say, I don't know. All I do is good things, and then uh, whether it's this hoax or that hoax, or like in this case, a total non-hoax, which we could have known sooner, even sooner, thanks to the Chinese, I get the same people just trying to get partisan advantage out of trying to... uh, Trying to tear down your favorite president. Not yours, I know, but uh, maybe soon, even you. I I have to go negotiate uh, a new deal about my hotels. I mean, my kids run them, but in a way, they're still mine, the hotels. And also, in a very real sense, my kids. So, uh, Mike is going to take over after a brief pause. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.
And now, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. UCLA officials, hey, that's my alma mater. They rolled back their decision this week about canceling traditional graduation ceremonies after students expressed anger and circulated petitions online. Universities said Wednesday they would replace in-person commencement with virtual ceremonies in an effort to curb the spread of the virus. They retracted the decision Thursday, saying they would work with students to restart the conversation. According to a press release from UCLA, UCLA Chancellor Gene Block, we should have known the impact this decision would make, especially during this tense time. We should have listened first, Block wrote. For this, he added, I apologize. An email sent out by a landlord telling tenants who work in the restaurant industry to find alternate ways to pay rent if they're out of work due to the coronavirus or face aggressive removal blew up on Twitter. The landlord has apologized, according to Newsweek. A Twitter user Newsweek, a Twitter user posted the screenshot from her friend's Instagram story, writing that the Indianapolis-based landlord sent out the email to tenants. It targeted tenants that may work in the service industry who've been struggling as restaurants closed or are forced to only take out services during the virus. Quote, most of our tenant pool is not in the restaurant industry. If you are, now is the time to use your savings to pay your rent first, the message says. Tap your rainy day fund, because it's raining. If you're out of savings, you need to tap your 401k, unquote. The email then goes on to list alternative methods of gathering the funds. If you don't have retirement funds, you need to borrow money from your parents and relatives. If you don't have parents or relatives, you need to sell your car. You should pay your rent before you pay your car payment, your utilities, your cell phone, or even food. It's better to go to a food bank than to be homeless, unquote. The last of the screenshots says the landlord's actions are for the good of all tenants, and they will remove non-paying tenants. We can't let a few non-paying tenants bring down the whole ship. In an email to Newsweek, the landlord sent out a uh, message of remorse. Quote, I realize I made a significant mistake and offended my tenants in the community. The message I sent was completely insensitive on my part, so I sent an apology to my tenants within a few hours and apologized for my ignorance, insensitivity, and callousness. I also tendered my resignation to my partners from day-to-day operations. I'm disappointed in myself, and I let down people I care about. It pains me to offend those in the restaurant industry because I was a server for many years to pay my way through school, and those years were some of the best of my life. I wish health and calm for our tenants and for all of our community in these tough times. Yeah, calm. That's what he's peddling. True story. I was uh, in a recording studio once working on a song that had the word pant load in the lyrics sort of as a um, placeholder for what the real lyric is going to be. And I checked with thesaurus.com to get a uh, less unsavory synonym for pant load. And the response uh, thesaurus.com had was, Did you mean landlord? YouTuber Nikki DeMar has apologized after being slammed and accused of being a racist over a coronavirus TikTok video. The 24-year-old had filmed herself getting her nails done while wearing a mask, with the tune, It's Corona Time, playing in the background. Social media users called the influencer, well, she's an influencer, a racist due to the fact that the lady doing her nails appeared to be Asian. 
DeMar insisted in her latest clip, I would have done that video regardless of who was doing my nails. I see everyone equally, so I truly didn't see the problem until someone texted me. Unquote. One person told her she looked privileged making some poor lady work while she was out getting her nails done. Others insisted she couldn't have gone out in public in the first place. DeMar pointed out this was filmed a week ago. Then I was informed... She thought the backlash was about going out in public. Then I was informed about xenophobia. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Sorry if I'm not. I understand how it looked that way, and I'm not making this video to be like I did nothing wrong, insisting she's a, quote, grown-ass woman, unquote. She's an influencer. Oh. DeMar finished the clip by saying, I can't be so thoughtless and impulsive and dumb when doing something for humor. I'll apologize for my mistake, but I'm not racist, and I know who I am, and it is what it is. Before getting emotional and turning off the camera. The original video has been deleted. That is grown-ass. Gay plus-size model Michael McCauley is addressing racist social media posts of his that resurfaced on Twitter just as he was being profiled in Abercrombie & Fitch's new ad campaign about inclusiveness. That's rotten timing. Queerty, queerty queertygot.com, ran an interview with Macaulay last weekend during which he touted the importance of diverse representation. Shortly after the interview was published, a number of racist social media posts written by him began recirculating on social media. In one of the posts, he blasted members of Black Lives Matter, calling them a group of extremists. In another, he bemoaned the activist group for blocking the streets and making him late for a meeting. In another, he took aim at Jada Pinkett Smith for her stance on Oscars so, uh, hashtag Oscars so white, then complained the Grammys don't nominate enough white artists. Then he took to Twitter, unquote. No, sorry, quote, quote first, unquote later. I want to address the comments that were recently brought to light from several years ago. They were not intended to be hurtful. I realize how insensitive they are, and I'm sorry for the harm they caused. Thank you. He shared the post on Instagram, but deactivated the comments. That'll lure. Craig Fugate, former head of FEMA under President Obama, apologized for storming off the set and uttering a profanity during a segment on MSNBC. If you can't utter a profanity on MSNBC, where? In a tweet posted shortly after his appearance, Fugate apologized to anchor Katie Tour and the MSNBC audience. At the point I'm not helping, time to step back, he wrote. Never was good at the talking head thing anyway. This is too critical of a time to let emotions get in the way. My apologies to you and your audience. Unquote. Fugate had gotten into a disagreement with fellow panelist Andy Slavitt, also a former Obama administration health official. Fugate had argued the coronavirus needs to be dealt with immediately on the state and local level. Slavitt had called for more federal involvement. Slavitt had said, uh, we need a great partnership in the fe- between the federal and state governments. Fugate pulled out his earpiece and stormed off the set, saying, I don't have time to listen to BS, people. Slavitt also apologized. So it's a uh, tie. China has exonerated a doctor who was officially reprimanded for warning about the coronavirus outbreak and later died of the disease. You heard about him. This is a startling admission of error by the ruling Communist Party, which like uh, our current government, generally bodes no challenges to its authority. The party's top disciplinary body said the police force in Wuhan had revoked its admonishment of Dr. Li Wenliang, 
That had included a threat of arrest. It also said a solemn apology had been issued to Lee's family, and the two police officers, identified only by their surnames, had been issued disciplinary punishments for the original handling of the matter. Communist Party officials, police specifically in December, had reprimanded eight doctors, including Lee, for warning friends on social media about the emerging threat. Toronto Raptors' Chris Boucher has apologized through social media channels for disregarding the self-isolation edict from the team and the NBA after taking a test for the virus. Boucher was spotted shopping at a downtown Toronto shop, Loblaws, after he'd been tested for the virus following the team's return from a western, western road trip. A few days ago, I broke our team-mandated self-quarantine, he said. I want to apologize to the city of Toronto, our fans, and the Raptors organization. While I have tested negative, it was never my intention to endanger our community. I recognize mistake and have remained self-quarantined since. Let's stay safe, Toronto. Unquote. Vanessa Hudgens took to Instagram this week to clarify comments she made during an Instagram Live clip a day earlier that went viral. Many viewers had accused the actress and singer, oh, okay then, of not taking the pandemic seriously enough. During the latest video, Hudgens, looking direct at the camera, responds to shutdown orders that some have said could last as long as July or August. Mm, yeah, till July sounds like a bunch of BS, she said of a potential quarantine to her 38 million followers. I'm sorry, but like, it's a virus. I get, I, I respect it, but at the same time, I'm like, even if everybody gets it, like, yeah, people are going to die, which is terrible, but like, inevitable? Un- like, unquote. She then seemed to backtrack a bit, adding, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this right now. She'd been busy on Instagram recently, posting everything from makeup and hair looks to calling her followers to donate to causes such as Feeding America. Let's help each other out rather than freaking the F out, KK, she posted three days ago. But it was the comments from the Instagram Live clip that immediately caught fire with followers and other social media users quick to call her out for not being sensitive enough to the global crisis. Journalist and influencer Yasher Ali was among the most high-profile who posted the clip and challenged her. What a horrible and heartless message for you to share with the younger people who look up at you. Up to you, he said. I think that's on them. On Tuesday, Hudgens blamed people for twisting her words, saying, quote, I realize that some of my comments are being taken out of context. It's a crazy time. It's a crazy, crazy time. And I'm at home and I'm in lockdown. And I hope that's what you guys are doing, too, in full quarantine and staying safe and sane. I don't take this situation lightly by any means. Stay inside, y'all. She followed with a formal apology that reads, Hey, guys, I'm so sorry for the way I've offended anyone and everyone who has seen the clip from my Instagram yesterday. I realize my words were insensitive and not at all appropriate for the situation our country and the world are in right now. This has been a huge wake-up call about the significance my words have. Now more than ever, I'm sending safe wishes to everyone to stay safe and healthy during this crazy time, unquote. Which only proves that was written by her lawyers, because they don't say like nearly as often as like she did. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Bye.
Just a final note, since we're being told the Army Corps of Engineers is going to be doing a lot of work connected with the um, coronavirus thing, the Army Corps of Engineers has got a plan to clean up a 50-year-old oil spill in Alaska. They built, did the Corps of Engineers, a steel pipeline to carry fuel over 600 miles from Haines to Fairbanks in the 1950s. Operating for over a decade, over that time there were numerous spills including a rupture of a pump station. Approximately 33,000 gallons of oil were released, says Will Magano, the Corps' technical head of the project. It's about 800 barrels of fuel. Programs to clean up environmental damage like that didn't exist when the spill happened. In the 1980s, that changed. The Army dug up the soil around the leak and then burned the fuel, basically the extent of the cleanup at the time, said Magano. Now... Well, the contaminated area is on the bank of a river, the Chilcot, a food source for two towns in Alaska, and spawning grounds for all five species of Pacific salmon. The Corps focused in on the spill site in 2012 and found gasoline, diesel, and benzene in the nearby, nearby soil and groundwater. Surface water samples showed contamination levels warranted a cleanup. Contaminates were found up to 14 feet deep in the soil, still causing risk to human health, according to Alaska's environmental officer. The Corps came with a range of cleanup options. Most vigorous, sorry, and most rigorous, they'll excavate 17,000 tons of contaminated soil, treat it with a process called land farming to neutralize the contamination. Then they'll put in clean soil. They won't excavate all the contaminated soil, because that would mean digging up a portion of a highway, you see. If the plan moves forward, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is bound to monitor soil and water at the site in perpetuity. Or until everybody forgets about it. No, until no contaminants are detected. Well, let them try. The motto of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. And ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Back, back in your room... Next week, same time on the radio, whenever you want it, on your audio device of choice. The email address for this program, a chance to get car- Cars I Talk t-shirts and the audio music playlist of what you hear here, all at harryshare.com. And I'm on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long, and don't touch your face.